We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Would you please turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 7. We'll pick up our scripture reading there this morning. Revelation chapter 7. Concerning those things which are still to come, we find written in God's word, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So we're talking about uh, Israelites who are sealed. And from, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Just want us to understand that, again, these were Israelites, those who God would save spiritually, those who would come into the kingdom and uh, be born again. Verse 9, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? So, 
or excuse me, verse 14, and I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Kindly take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke's Gospel and Chapter 8 again this morning. In Luke's Gospel and Chapter 8, remember at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke said that he wanted to set forth an orderly narration of the things that had occurred among them, amongst the first century Jews, and by so doing, he introduces us to who Jesus is and about his work, and he intends that by so doing as he says in the opening verses, that he would convey a level of certainty to us about the truths that he was speaking of. It's easy to see how he could think that because, for example, in Luke chapter 8, he uh, opens the chapter really with the parable of the sower and then the parable of the lamps. And both of these intended to convey something of the truth and the distribution of the truth that Jesus is preaching. And then he follows up with the miracles of the Lord that justify why we should listen to him. You know, somebody you might imagine with a, a snarky attitude might say, well, why should I listen to Jesus? What he says, that's an ancient book with an ancient religion. It's irrelevant for today. Why should I listen? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. Uh, This one who is speaking can still the wind and the waves and raise dead people and heal people who are ill and cast out demons from them, not in a fake way, but a real way. So, you know, chew that for a little while, Mr. Snark, and think about that. If he can do that, then maybe we ought to listen to what he's saying. In our section today, Luke gives a brief account of the weak faith of the disciples, and I think we can well identify with them in that. Let's see, as we look at a message this morning entitled Stormy Seas, in which we'll learn that Jesus has not only the truth, but also power over nature so that we can fully trust in him, and we ought to for that matter. So we look at verses 22 through 25, just a shorter section today, verses 22 through 25. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, And were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. 
I was interested when I turned to my Greek text and I saw that uh, word, he arose. It's related to the Greek verb egero, which means to rise or resurrect. And it's obviously used in a context here of waking from rest. But uh, didn't the Lord also awake from another kind of rest and still another kind of storm when he rose from the dead after Calvary? Verse 25, but he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, Jesus often traveled over the Sea of Galilee back and forth to Decapolis on the east and, and over to by Capernaum on the west and up to the north uh, western corner, various different routes they would cover so that he could minister in different places. I, I sometimes imagine maybe he ministered over on this side, and then instead of walking a, around the lake to the other side, he took a quicker boat ride there, not only to save time, but also to kind of leave those crowds behind to stew in their thinking about what he had just been doing, and so they wouldn't as easily be able to follow him across to the other side, although we know that did occur as well. This uh, journey, we might be, you know, we might think of it just in terms of, you know, normal travel that the Lord had to get from one side to the other, but I suspect that the Lord had a thought that he might teach the disciples a little bit on the way. In other words, to make this journey multifaceted, not just to get from point A to point B, but that in the journey of it, you know how they say it's not just the destination, it's the journey, uh, right? All that fun on a road trip and everything, that maybe he had this thought I'm going to teach the disciples something important on this journey. Now, windstorms would come up suddenly on the Sea of Galilee because of its geography. It's lower than sea level, as I recall, some 600 or so feet lower than sea level. And it's surrounded on the, uh, let me see now, the western side and the northern side by mountainous areas with valleys and uh, windstorms could come through those valleys, be channeled down through there and come onto the lake and really cause a lot of headaches for uh, boaters on that lake, fishermen and sailors and so on. So conditions may have looked favorable at the beginning of their journey, but suddenly turn adverse against them, depending on the season of the year, summer to early fall, in the, my understanding, when the windstorms would come and give them uh, these uh, sudden and violent storms. Such a situation might give anyone pause to going out on the lake at all. You know, like we say, I'm not moving to Florida because they have hurricanes over there. You know, this somebody might say, well, I'm not going out on that lake because it's summertime and who knows what could happen uh, in that place, in that lake, if I'm right on it, in the midst of traveling across it. So somebody might be pa give pause to, uh, to taking that journey. But in this instance, as we read, the storm did come and the boat did begin to fill with water. Have you ever had that happen to you? I have not, but I don't care to have that terrifying feeling ever in my life to think that I might be going down with the ship uh, in the middle of the lake. Uh, I'm not a great swimmer. I can uh, do a little bit, but, uh, you know, when you're out there in the big waves and stuff, I don't have much hope for my uh, abilities in a situation like that. They did not have the ability to keep up, <clears throat> and it was terrifying. You know, give me a five-gallon pail, and I'll start bailing water out. But 
if it's coming over the sides more than five gallons, you know, every second, I can't keep up with it, and the men on the boat couldn't, and it's a bad situation. Terrifying. Uh, perhaps they didn't have a bilge pump, huh? Well, no, they didn't have a bilge pump, did they? I say that with tongue-in-cheek. In ancient times, no such thing, of course, but even in a modern boat, a bilge pump is not able to keep up with a catastrophic entrance of water into the boat, whether it's by a hole or being washed over by huge waves. Now, it's also noteworthy to me, if I turn my Bible back to Mark chapter 4, listen to this, Mark 4, 36, and I believe this is the same event when uh, they crossed over. Now when they'd left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as, as he was, and other little boats, boats were also with him. Okay, so this is not just one boat here, it appears. This is a little flotilla of other little boats. And so perhaps the disciples felt that when they approached the Lord, they're speaking for the other members of this flotilla in these perhaps even smaller boats in difficult circumstances that not only we're going to sink, but all these other people are going to sink as well. Well, during all of this excitement, the Lord is told us here in verse 23, fell asleep. This shows his humanity. But it's an odd kind of humanity, isn't it? It's a very relaxed humanity. I can imagine I would not be sleeping in this situation. Would you? I would probably be violently seasick, not comfortably sleeping away on the pillow in the back of the boat. He had a very relaxed humanity, didn't he? He could just rest. Why could he do that? Why could he do that? Ultimate trust in his father, I think. He let the disciples do the driving. I know some of you have teen drivers. You would never fall asleep and let them just do the driving, would you? Or am I looking at some right now? <laughs> but you should be safe enough for your parents to fall asleep while you're driving, right? No? <laughs> Uh-oh. We have some work to do yet. Well, anyway... Uh, he let them do the driving, as I say. With the large crowds and the busy schedule, there would be bodily stress, bodily tiredness. Even at 30 years old, the Lord had his limitations physically and required rest. Some of us have learned that the hard way when we've tried to you know, be Superman and overdo it and uh, less, too, too little rest, too little hydration, and uh, things begin to fail fairly rapidly. We couldn't fault the Lord, though, here for his stress management, could he? You know, time to rest, he rests. Just take it easy. In our own rest, don't we depend upon God to keep us safe? And we depend that, you know, on his design of our bodies that will work to repair and restore what is needful from the wear and tear of the prior day. And I thank God for that, and I pray that you are able to rest well. I know that for me, I've had trouble with that in the past, and I know many of you also have had trouble with that in the past, and that's a, in part a spiritual issue. There's some physical issues, obviously, too, with that, but we want to be able to trust God and be able to rest. Our Lord's nice nap, however, was disturbed. And if the sleep proves his humanity, 
what he does next proves his deity. And so we have in one passage, in one verse and the next verse, the humanity of Christ. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit. And he shows his omnipotent deity here. Uh, when the song says that, that one hymn that says he, uh, when he came that he emptied himself of all but love, that's not theologically correct. Uh, he didn't empty himself of everything except love. He still retained fully his divine nature and the ability that he had, of course, working in concert with the Father and the Spirit to do things such as this for his purpose, not just for what's the, you know, for to be spectacular or to be a show off or or whatever, but it was to accomplish a purpose. So he commanded the storm and the waves to stop because he created them. He was their master and they had to obey him. Without him was not anything made that was made, right? John chapter 1 and verse number 3. Uh, you know, in him all things consist. Uh, from, from the invisible things or, or nothing, really, God created all things through Jesus Christ. And it says that to us in Colossians 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and also in John 1, verse 3, which I just quoted. Now, Jesus, in a way, and Luke follows, personifies the elements here. He rebukes them like you would rebuke a person, like a, a disobedient man would be rebuked. But don't think here that the Lord is treating the wind and the waves as as if they were evil spirits. They're not evil spirits. They're not spirits at all. They're wind and they're waves. Um, but perhaps, perhaps there was a personal power behind the elements, a devilish one. But that's a bit of speculation, and the disciples don't seem to be aware of it in any case. Why do I say that? I, I, I read about that, and I I'd scratch my head for a second and think, and I remembered back to Job chapter 1, in which God gave Job uh, Satan permission over Job to do all kinds of terrible things to him, but don't touch him. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2 got worse, but all these terrible things began to happen in Job's life, and one of them was that uh, there was a whirlwind that came and struck the home where the children were and killed all of them. So he had nothing. So evidently, there is somehow the ability of Satan to affect the weather somehow, or I, I don't know how that works, okay? That's beyond my pay grade. In fact, I've told, told people recently a couple of occasions, it's not our business to study the works of the devil, is it? It's our business to study the works and the words of God and to know them well. So going off on all the speculation about how the devil does things and what he teaches and all of his you know, schemes and all of that sort of stuff, we'd be aware of those things, but we don't focus on those things. Okay, So whatever, God through Christ here rebukes the elements and they must obey him. You know, the Lord has set, for example, a boundary for the oceans and beyond them they cannot go any farther. You don't have to worry about the world being flooded and, you know, 500 feet deep of water and we're all sunk. That happened once before, but God promised it would never happen again. 
okay, not by climate change or by any other thing. Well, the disciples had succumbed to fear before the Lord actually did this. They had succumbed to the fear of something other than the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Their desperation was a sign of a lack of trust in Him. Master, Master, we are perishing. Well, they weren't perishing yet. They were still somewhat afloat. So He asked them a question in verse 25. Where is your faith? Consequently, a lot of the rest of our message is going to be focused on that question. But they, in turn, asked their own question. Notice in verse 25, in the middle, they were afraid and marveled, saying, Who can this be? This is a very special person who commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is very strange. Very, very strange. This is a supernatural action that demands us to deal with the person who is doing this. Remember, the disciples are not yet in possession fully of the knowledge that Peter professed later. Remember in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have to give the disciples a little bit of space here. You know, we too are a little bit dull about things at times, aren't we? most of the time or a long period of time into our life before we realize kind of obvious things sometimes. Now, in Luke 4, we saw that there was somebody who had this knowledge about Jesus. Luke 4, uh, 41. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Messiah. But the disciples didn't quite grasp that yet. There was a process of going on here in which they were learning about him. And the incident here awakened inside of them some new level of fear and respect for Jesus, which is, I think, part of the foundation of their faith. He was using this to help bring them along and cause them to grow and to build their faith and strengthen it in the midst of this test. And I believe this kind of thing provided for them and began to provide for them a strong foundation upon which their lives would be built in the future. I mean, imagine these disciples. They faced, ultimately, most of them martyrdom for their faith. What do you think? Do you think they're going to do that if they're not following the God of the universe who they observed with their own eyes still the storm and the sea and the wind or raise the dead and all of that? This is a real solid foundation that gives them 100% certainty that what they were doing in preaching the gospel was correct. It was what God wanted them to be doing without question. So that's the narrative, but let's think about how to relate this to our lives. Notice that in verse 22 it says, it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. So crossing over to the other side of the lake was a directive of the Lord Jesus, wasn't it? In carrying out that directive, they began to experience some severe difficulties. You and I also should not be surprised when difficulty arises in obeying the Lord, whether it might be in our own home, whether it might come from supernatural causes, whether it might come from persecution from the outside, 
whether it's uh, a nature or an accident or, you know, you're just trying to get to church and you've got a flat tire and you're being hindered providentially from getting there. Expect difficulties to come up when you're in the service of the king and he's asking you to do something like, hey, let's just go across the lake. There may be some difficulties. Now, on this portion of God's word, I have to limit the scope of my application here. I hope you see what I'm doing, applying you know, the Lord directive to the, to the disciples, applying that to his directives to us and saying, okay, we might also have difficulties, but we have to limit the scope of this application to times when you're doing the Lord's will. If you venture off into disobedient territory and you go off on your own and you're not listening to the Lord, I can't tell you, I mean, I can tell you you're going to expect difficulties, but I can't tell you that the Lord is going to just, you know, pop you up out of those difficulties right away. You got yourself into those difficulties. You may have some serious consequences. You may face trials. Keep your attention instead on the Lord and on his directives and that take the direction from God's word instead of just launching off on your own and doing your own thing. Uh, second application, thinking about the way the storms come up on this sea, there was, they knew, an inherent risk in taking a journey on this Sea of Galilee at this particular time. And what that might induce some people to do is say, well, because there's a risk, I'm not going to do anything, which is itself, most people don't recognize, a risky proposition, okay? Let me, let me illustrate it if I can, just thinking off the top of my head of an illustration. You say, um, you know, investing in that product and that, uh, say, something in the stock market or mutual fund or ETF or whatever, that, there's risk associated with that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep my money in the bank. Then I'll know that I have my money there. And the bank is paying you 0.1% interest, and the mathematician in me screams because I say you can have a risky proposition of some low risk, relatively speaking, and earn 7 or 8%, or you can have zero risk, you think, and earn 0.1%, which means that you have 100% risk of losing the inflation amount of your money over the course of time right? Inflation is 4% and you're getting 0.1%. You're basically losing 4% guaranteed. No risk. There's no risk at all, except there's 100% risk. It's like, well, I'm not going to go to church or I'm not going to do this for the Lord because it's too risky. Yet while you're sitting there, you're not faring too well in God's eyes in terms of his evaluation. 100% risk, but you think it's zero risk. You see that? Bad idea, bad thinking. There's always risk, of course. We've talked about that before. But sadly, this idea that there's too much risk is found in Christians today who refuse to do something risky for Jesus, a, a short-term mission trip, or even pulling up stakes to go to another place to plant a church or just testifying of your faith to another person. Has the discomfort, uncertain outcome, or fear of man stopped you from doing something that you know you need to do for God? The potential discomfort, the potential uncertain outcome. I'll, I'll give you another brief illustration. We uh, ran the service last 
Sunday afternoon for the little lights. We had never done anything like that before. I had no idea how it would turn out. I had no idea if there would be two people there or 200. We had a, a good little crowd, but it wasn't as big as we had hoped, and we hope maybe next time we do so that we'll have more people and we'll be able to reach out better. But I had no idea. People could respond poorly. They could say, what are you doing that for? You know, that's private. That's too painful. Uh, it brings up bad thoughts and all that sort of stuff. So I didn't know, but it turned out that God blessed it, I think, and it was a nice thing. But we can't not do things for God just because we don't know, like, you know, vacation Bible school. How many kids are going to come? I have no idea. We had 15 our first year. A few years later, we had nearly 100. For us, it was tremendous. But you don't, don't stop just because you have 15 the first year and say, oh, it's not worth it. <laughs> it's worth it, all right. It's worth it if some child gets saved, somebody hears the gospel, somebody's encouraged to go into Christian service for the rest of their life. Pretty good investment. So don't give in to fear. Instead, strengthen your faith in Christ and go with him as you obey him. And if trials come, trust him that he's going to lift you out of those trials or carry you through those trials. Many trials he will carry you through but not remove from you. And because you know that he has power to still the wind and the waves, you know that he has all the power needed to save you from any difficulty that you face. He can carry you through it, bring you out of it, or whatever. But if, if the man has this kind of power, then what can he not do for you and all of your humongous problems? Now, the Lord's question we come to, he asks this, where is your faith? And if I may... Could I allow that question? Maybe in your voice, not in my voice. Don't, don't, put, don't put me in your head. Put you in your head. And ask that question, where is my faith? Let that echo a little bit in, inside the cavern of your mind. <laughs> okay. Where is your faith? This is, the, is a question that reaches into the deepest part of our soul, doesn't it? Where is my faith? Think about the answer here for the disciples. Wherever their faith was, it wasn't in Jesus squarely. It was somewhere else. They had, and, and yet they had repeatedly seen Jesus heal people, remove demons, even raise uh, one from the dead in the city of Nain. It, it seems reasonable that they could trust that Jesus was not going to, to let them die by sinking or that the whole program of salvation would just go down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus' body there, it's not possible. Their faith was somewhere else. Wherever it was, it was in their faith or in their bilge pump, so to speak, or whatever. They didn't have faith placed in Jesus. <clears throat> what about you? Is your faith in Christ? Is your faith there? Or is it somewhere else? Is it nowhere because you don't have any? Is it, you know, in, uh, in yourself? You know, is it in things that you see? So you think. You know, I only believe what I see, except for all the things I believe that I don't see, which I'm just not thinking of right now. 
Do you trust in yourself? Do you believe mostly in your own mind and capabilities of self-determining thought and self-autonomous authority to guide you through your life? Is your faith in material things? Is it in the size of your retirement account so you have security in the end? Is it in your job? Is it in people? Is it in your husband? Is it in your family? Are there other things that give you a sense of security? Just where is your faith? Now, about faith, faith is a gracious gift from God. It's a gift from heaven. Ephesians 2.8, we looked at yesterday morning, says that uh, by grace you're saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The whole thing, I think, is the gift of God, the whole package. God, in, in uh, John chapter 1, you know, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. It's a gift. Philippians 1 29, to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Then there's God's Spirit who strengthens our faith and cultivates faith's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. There's faithfulness in there, a continuation of faith. But whether you understand how all of that works, in other words, how God grants somebody the mindset and disposition both of repentance toward about sin toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, at least know these other truths about faith in terms of what it is. Faith is an intermediate means of salvation. That is, God gives us the gift of salvation, but He always gives it through the gift of faith. He always gives it through the channel of faith or the conduit or the pipe, if you will, of faith. That's how it's transmitted or how we receive it. From him. Faith begins and is increased by meaningful exposure to God's Word. What does Romans 10:17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You see, you take that and you say it in another way, but it's a powerful way that faith begins and is strengthened by meaningful exposure to God's Word. We find it in the Bible that faith. Faith is strengthened by testing. Think of uh, James chapter 1 and verse number 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, and then there's patience and so on. And then um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 9, add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love These are things that we augment our faith with and it grows. Know this also about faith. Your faith is your faith. Your faith is yours. Why do I say that? You say, no, it's God's. No, it's yours. Yes, it's God's. He gave it to you. But if He gave it to you, have you received it? If if He gave it, have you grasped a hold of it and you hang on to it and say, yeah, that's my faith. I'm responsible to keep it God's helping, of course. I'm responsible to develop it. God's helping, of course. I'm responsible to build it out, like we said in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. It's mine, and I'm responsible over it. I have, a, I have a responsibility. The kind of faith we're talking about is faith in Jesus. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in myself. It's not faith in 
in the system or blind hope or faith in luck. You know, like you go, somebody that goes to a risky surgery at the hospital and they say, well, I have faith. We have faith in what? Fallible doctors or faith in the system or faith in the technicians that are going to be caring for you while you're asleep and unable to do nothing? Faith that I won't be in the 2% that have an adverse uh, side effect? Just faith, like it's faith in luck. We don't have faith in luck. We have faith and confidence and trust and belief and loyalty to Christ. He is our ultimate confidence, our ultimate trust, our ultimate belief, and our ultimate loyalty. And then finally, to know about faith. When you have genuine faith, it produces what? Good works. Produces good works. Remember, God saves, faith is the channel, and good works are the result. Don't turn that thing around and get good works you know, the cart before the horse. God gives us those good works to do. He's ordained us to do them. Now, uh, as we move on into other applications here, Luke does not mention Peter here. You might have wondered, well, what didn't this, wasn't this time Peter walked on water? Well, remember, they had multiple journeys back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, and it was another journey that Peter had that experience in Matthew chapter 14. Not in this particular incident, but it's still a good illustration of the principles of faith and fear while obeying the Lord. The Lord, well, Peter first asked, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And Peter probably said to himself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, now I've done it. And he goes out there and he begins, but then he sees everything around him, and he just starts to go down into the deep. So Jesus did issue the command. Peter left the boat in willing obedience and began to walk to Jesus in that storm-tossed sea, but then began to be fearful and focused on things around him. Lost sight of his confidence in Christ. Wonderful picture of that. That Jesus was able to enable him to obey the command, no matter how difficult or impossible it seemed. Peter knew from this prior boat ride that Jesus had power over the waves and the wind. Why not? He had power of the natural order itself. One other, well, a couple other thoughts. Jesus knows well also that you and I need rest. He was a human. He was, a, he was taken from among men, appointed for man concerning the things of God regarding sins. Hebrews 6 tells us, 5 and 6 and 7. And so he could be a sympathetic high priest to us. But note that when he rested, he had a very busy schedule from which to rest. In other words, he had a reason to rest. His life exemplified purposeful accomplishment, not lazy inactivity or unimportant busyness. You ever felt that before? Man, I'm so busy, but I'm getting nothing done. So busy, but getting nothing done. Unimportant busyness, not accomplishing anything, or just lazy inactivity. The guy that's like the door on on his bed, you know, what's it like? He's like a door on its hinge. He just goes from one side to the other and doesn't accomplish anything. 
Jesus did not rest all the time or even most of the time, but when he rested, he rested because he needed the rest because of the busyness of the work that he was doing in his phys- using his physical body. And then uh, one more application before we conclude today. Thinking about the, the bilge pump. Remember that? I used uh, illustration of that again. You know what that is? A little pump in the bottom of the very lowest hold of the boat that pumps water that gets in there out, you know, from, over, from spray from the uh, ocean or, or other water that goes in there, pumps it out the side of the boat, and you see little holes in the side with little streams of water coming out. There are some situations for which there is no bilge pump, for which there, uh, there's no human ingenuity that's sufficient, there's no natural means, there's no medical technology. There are situations that you might find yourself in where there's no mechanical device, no computer software, no artificial intelligence that can solve the problem. There's no amount of hard work You know, if I just work hard enough, I'll work my way out of this problem. Sometimes that's not the case. And I have to caution people sometimes about that. You know, there's going to come a time when you're not going to be able to PT, physical therapy, your way out of your situation. You're going to be stuck and be unable to do what you used to do before. Uh, Just maybe this is a little bit off off the side as far as an illustration, but I was just thinking of uh, something that fascinates me in terms of uh, things where, you know, they're fail-safe mechanisms and you think you've got everything covered, but you don't. The Fukushima nuclear reactor in Japan with all of its fail-safe modes and capabilities, an earthquake followed by a power outage, followed by a tsunami. What happened to it? Ended up releasing a large amount of nuclear radiation There was a situation 10 times worse at Chernobyl back in 1986 in Ukraine. And many of you know about that. There's a almost 20-mile radius around that plant that's called the exclusion zone today. There's simply no way to wave a magic wand and heal that spot of ground. It's just the way it is. In similar fashion, there was nothing that the disciples could do to stop the storm. You know, no matter how much they wished that it would stop, it was going to happen whether they liked it or not. But there was a person who could deliver them through that storm. And it was good for them that they called out to the right person. You know, master, master. But their attitude was one that lacked trust and was desperate. I encourage you, whenever you feel that master-master feeling, that desperate feeling start to arise, you know that you're in the wrong lane. You need to change into the lane where there's faith. Okay, So make a lane shift so that you don't go on in desperation and trying to find a solution and natural means when there is no such. If the ship had gone down, our salvation would have sunk with it. But there was nothing to worry about because Jesus demonstrated himself to be the sovereign over all things, supernatural ruler over nature. We don't know, as I indicated earlier, if the storm arose just because of natural tendencies, you know, the kind of accident of nature or it was uh, demonically influenced or purposely permitted by God to get the disciples to marvel at who Jesus is and 
and to compare their problems with what he can accomplish, certainly I think the latter is true. These were good foundations for their faith. We too must keep our eyes in the right places, uh, think of our hurts, our emotions, our fears, our anxieties, our family problems, our medical diagnoses, our awkward moments, our embarrassments, our mistakes, our sins, and all the rest are insignificant if we're sitting right next to Jesus. Okay, think of what, what is bothering you right now, what is hurting you, what is painful to you, what is, seems insurmountable to you is not too big if you're sitting right next to Christ, is it? And, and after all, he, you know, Hebrews 13.5 says, how can we fear what man will do to us? We have the Lord. You know, with that, we should be content. Take all those things that are troubling you and admit that he is bigger than all of them. So we can be confident and not fearful of circumstances. He's with us. He's with his church. His body will be built. It will not sink. You stick with Jesus and you will not sink either. If anything, actually, at worst, you will arise, ultimately arise in new life and eternal life and everlasting glorified heavenly life. Now, the next sections show Luke, or Luke shows Jesus as ruling over supernatural beings as well as human health problems. Here it was just showing how he's powerful over nature. But keep in mind, all of this reinforces, reinforces the preaching ministry of Jesus. He's the sower. He's giving the word, giving truth, light, the lamp of divine revelation. And so we have to give earnest heed to his words because he does this kind of stuff. He's, he's, he's the supernatural agent in charge here. Let's, in closing, just uh, reflect for a few moments on Psalm 107. Please don't uh, give up paying attention just yet. I think you'll be blessed by hearing what Psalm 107 has to say in verse number 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on the great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commanded and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they're quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Jesus shows himself to be this Lord who has power over the stormy wind and the waves. May we in faith give him thanks for caring for us too, just like he cared for those disciples on the boat. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for having control over the stormy seas.
delivering us your truth and showing your power so that we might fully trust in you and be certain of our conviction that, Jesus, you are the way of salvation. And, Father, you have drawn us to him through your word, and the Spirit of God has convinced us of the truth of this word. I pray your help, Lord, that we would deal carefully with this question, where is my faith? And not just blow it off. It's it's essential to our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.